you're only competing against yourself. I have no ability to change the way that my competitors were going to race. All I could do was change the way that I was going to race. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga and this is 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. Warm welcome to all of you out there listening. I hope you're enjoying this series as much as I am. I've had the opportunity to talk to some unbelievable performers, not only from the world of sport, but from other performance arenas too, about the mental skills, strategies, and approaches that underpin peak performance, and about their own paths to success. It's really been fascinating to get a glimpse into the process, the motivations, the hopes, dreams, and sometimes the struggles of these top performers. All of those episodes are available on the website, 80percentmental.com, so make sure you subscribe either there or wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you get all of the up-to-date info and notifications of new episodes like this one. Um, I, I was coming back from, from Portugal recently, and a woman on the flight was having real trouble getting herself on the plane, like borderline panic attack. And might have been because it was a Ryanair flight, but fear of flying, I think, is a pretty common phobia. But imagine instead of a two-hour flight in the comfort of a 737, you're piloting a small single-seater airplane with a 25-foot wingspan through a 30 to 50-foot window at 250 miles an hour. Scary stuff. Although not so scary for my first guest tonight, who I have to say, honestly, is kind of a big deal. So I, I'm truly honored to welcome my first guest to tonight's podcast, uh, Mike Goulian. Um, Mike, I'm just going to read out a couple of things here to introduce you properly, uh, if that's okay. Sounds great, absolutely. So Mike is an aerobatic pilot from the USA. Uh, he says he's been flying since before he could drive a car. Um, Mike's run a flying school for over 30 years and worked his way to the top ranks of air show display flying and competitive aerobatics. Uh, Mike became the youngest ever U.S. national champion in the advanced category at the age of 22. Um, in 1992, he was the top-ranked U.S. male aerobatic pilot and silver medalist in the unlimited category. Did that again in 1993. And in 95, became the U.S. national champion in the unlimited ca uh, category. Uh, Mike's been a member of the U.S. aerobatic team uh, in 94, 96, and 98, I believe, and is a Red Bull racing pilot. Like I said, pr pretty big deal. Uh, Mike, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thrilled to have you on. Uh, Peter, thank you very much. And uh, I know it's been a little bit of a struggle to try to put this all together, but <laughs> I think uh, our discussion tonight would be really worth it. So thank you for having me on the podcast and thanks for trying to stick with my crazy schedule. <laughs> No, yeah, you're more than welcome and uh, really looking forward to, to talking to you about some of the mental challenges about what you uh, what you do. Um, but joining Mike, uh, and I'm honestly not just saying this, is another pretty big deal. <laughs> uh, at this time in the world of performance psychology, we've got Dr. Adam Naylor. Uh, Adam spent over 25 years serving as a mental performance consultant to a wide range of professional Olympic and NCAA athletes and organizations. And he currently leads performance psychology for the professional services firm Deloitte and supports athletes through Telos SPC. Adam, welcome to 80% Mental for the second time, actually, because we spoke um, on the Live from ASP episode last year, didn't we? 
That's right. It's almost been a year. Pete, thank you. You are way too kind. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to this conversation. Mike and I have had so many conversations over the years and they're always way too much fun. <laughs> Good. Well, I, I honestly, I'm so pleased that we've managed to arrange getting you both uh, together on the podcast. Like you said, Mike, it was a, a long time coming, but we got there eventually. Okay. So um, I, I want to start, Mike, with you and just, just to get a little bit about your, your background, really. So how you got from kind of just starting out to national champion to Red Bull racing. Can you just tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah. Well, well Pete, so I grew up uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and my dad owned a flying school. Uh, it was, it was quite a big flying school and, but I grew up as an athlete, right? I was a golfer, a hockey player, a baseball player. Uh, the bigger, the jump I could do on my bicycle, the bigger, the better it was. And, uh, just grew up as an, as an athlete. Um, but then by the time I was about 15, my dad wanted me to learn what it was like to earn a living and, uh, find the value of a dollar. And so, he brought me to the airport one summer on school break. And I tell people like, I, I didn't find airplanes, airplanes found me. The environment around an airport is pretty intoxicating. It's really cool. Sometimes it's a little, a little loud. So if you can hear some jets and airplanes in the background, I apologize for that. <laughs> Cause uh, I'm in my office looking at my hangar uh, window and all my planes are out there, but the runway's out there too. So it's a little loud, but uh, I, I, I like um, it's just adding atmosphere to the podcast. I like it. Right. And so I started flying when I was about 15 years old. I sold on my 16th birthday, like we said, prior to, uh, even being able to, to, uh, drive a car legally by myself. And I was homesick from school one day and I saw a movie on aerobatic flying and I just thought, man, that looked like something that would be really cool to do. And I'm, I always want to be measured in anything that I did in life, whether it be sports or business. And aerobatic flying to me was one of those things that, like, hey, it's the it gives me the ability to do something where I can achieve a goal, try to be better. I can be measured against myself and others. And so that's really how I got into aerobatic flying was it was just a, if you will, it was a, a sport that I could um, endeavor to be great at after my school years. Yes, yeah, so you've always had that kind of competitive streak, competing with yourself, pushing yourself to be the best at what you do. And this kind of gave you an avenue to do that. It did, definitely. Yeah. So uh, tell me how you got from from kind of taking up this, this sport to kind of the the incredible success that you've had really um you know what I, I tell people uh i i started and i was too stupid to stop right i don't know like <laughs> that, there's um there's just no I, I don't know what it's like to to quit something or to, to to sort of not just give it your all and so to me i once i found that i just looked at myself as uh an airshow pilot and an aerobatic pilot first and foremost hmm. through my career. Like that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I started competing regionally uh, in aerobatic competitions. And as there's, there's five levels of competition back in the day, there's uh, primary sportsmen, intermediate, advanced and unlimited. And so as you get better, those categories, you, you know, you get better, higher and higher in categories, but also the equipment, the airplanes that you fly 
need to coincide with that. So uh, as my, my skills and my budget allowed, I would go from one category to the next category to the next category. Um, and I started to do really quite well. And um, the year before I won the nationals, I think I might've flown in like 10 contests and won eight of them. Uh, and then in the next year, started to win the nationals. And, and then that sort of really parlayed into a career of air show flying as well. So doing displays as well as competing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a 10 year, I made it sound quick and easy, but it's a 10 year process probably to get there eight to 10 years. Um, and then started flying in the Red Bull air race when it was created in and around 2005. I guess, you know, I described it as flying a small plane through an equally small window really, really fast. But for, for the un uninitiated amongst us, which kind of includes me, I have to admit, can you tell us a little bit about what's actually involved in what you do? Because obviously there's the aerobatic stuff and there's the racing stuff. Can you kind of give us a quick description of, of, of what it is that's that's involved? So very simply, it's a Formula One car with wings, right? That's, that's kind of, if, if the... The listeners are like, what the heck are these people talking about? It's a single seat, very small, incredibly strong, incredibly agile airplane. Um, the fuselage itself is built out of steel tubes. And then the wings, the tail, and the covering of the airplane are all uh, lightweight carbon fiber. So the airplane is about... Um, five times stronger than any airliner that you would get into. And it's much more maneuverable and nimble than any fighter jet that you'd get into, right? Like if you think about it, it does it. Uh, it weighs around 1,200 pounds. And when we're flying the in the, both in the Rebel Air Race or in air shows, it's a G excursion of about – uh, upwards of plus 10 to plus 12 G, which uh, is, is quite a bit. And so it's, uh, I would have to say it's a pretty good workout. Awesome. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a pretty physically demanding uh, uh, sport. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of the mental aspects of that as, as we get on. But Adam, I want to bring you in as well here. Um, uh, can you, can you just, Tell us a little bit about yourself, but also how you ended up working with with Mike. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a story. It's actually before we even got on here today, you saw perhaps part of the story as well go down. So myself, so I've been in the, the sport performance psychology space forever. I, my bad mm. joke in life now is it's the only marketable skill I know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was a geek about it in the early 90s, managed to you know get all the degrees necessary and just make this robust career out of it where... It, you know, I, I think about it so often, you know, I had the, I've had the pleasure of work in sports, in aviation, in the UFC, like normal, traditional sports that we all know about, and then sports where I got to learn a ton about. So mm. ironically, as we were talking, I'm sure you could start to see a little bit more, you know, I, I wasn't afraid of flying before meeting Mike. Now I'm a, I think I'm a, a certified aviation geek. You know, when it comes down to it, um, with Mike and the 99 team, just spending time together, one of my sweet spots is down in Mike's hangar. It's the cleanest hangar in the world. You could eat off the floor. It's a beautiful hangar and just to see the different planes and learn things. So my, my career was really at one of curiosity, but you asked, how did Mike and I end up together? And, and Mike might know the story even better than I, 
I want to say, I think our first meeting was around 2015, if I got it about right. And I was referred to him from his golf professional. So I still swear to this day, Mike thought I was going to improve his golf game. (laughs) Um, And the bottom line is I walked into the hangar going, how are we going to help this super small plane and this, this athletic pilot end up on as many podiums as possible? So it was really something I did not Again, I knew very little about it, and I think it speaks to Mike, right? He's always a learner. He said, I think I want to learn. I think this is important to be part of my development, part of my team. And we really took it from there. You know, I, I think we we really grew in the space together over the years and I, I think had a lot of fun successes and, you know, supported a great team. So it started with a golf pro's recommendation, and I can tell you, Elite aviation is nothing like golf when it comes to the mental game. <laughs> and full disclosure, Pete, my golf game has not improved since I've met Adam. So, just to say. But we found a bunch of podiums somehow. So, you we know, pri- priorities, priorities. Yeah, we took some button here. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you then, Mike. Um, you know, when it comes to some of the mental challenges of racing and, and aerobatics, um, you know, obviously you've worked with Adam for, for, for a number of years. What would you say are some of the main mental challenges that you um, have, to, have to deal with? So it's interesting. Um, our sport in the Red Bull Air Race was very much a team sport. But you don't realize that in the beginning, hmm. right? You think that the performance, your result on the racetrack is really directly directly related to how you're doing. And you know that there there is some truth to that. But as I started to work with Adam Moore, um, you you begin to realize that it's all of the pieces that you have to put together to make a successful team. And there's, you know, what we would say on our team is there has to be a bunch of magic in the hangar, right? And it's funny where when you see somebody that's at the top of their game, maybe today it's Roy McElroy um, or, you know, the new rising tennis stars, they have a little bit of a swagger, right? They just walk onto the court or onto the course and they just know that they're going to be great. But there's a whole bunch of people, maybe ranked fifth through 50, that are trying to find that swagger, right? And it's a, it is such a fine balance and it comes and goes. Well, when we started in 2015, I didn't have the swagger, right? And, and you, you lose, like I knew that I was a great aviator and I knew I was as good as everybody else but our results weren't showing it. And then after a while you start searching and the harder you search, the harder it is to find. Right. And so Adam, he basically started to break us down in my opinion. Maybe he's, maybe he's going to laugh at all this, but my take of it was he needed to create a team which supported me, which gave me the confidence to go out there and to do my best and basically find that swagger, right? And and to as we would talk about like hey, you just have to go be an athlete, right? And there was a there was a time where the technical stuff went away because the just like Formula 1, 
in the Red Bull Air Race, it was all technical. Like we were trying to match a line that the computer was drawing for us through the track. Well, we're humans and we can't really, um, we can't do that. We're not capable mm. of doing that, right? We're athletes in a sport and the winds are changing, the conditions are changing, all of those kinds of things are happening. Um, and we just have to react to it or try to control it. So I think, you know, to sum up, what did what did Adam do for me and the team? He gave us belief in ourselves and he figured out how to get through my brain to give me the swagger that I needed to be who I truly was on the racetrack. No, that's awesome. I, I, Adam, t- tell me about the swagger. It's, it was, this story is so <laughs> wild for me to hear, right? Because I, I don't disagree with it, but I also disagree with Adam giving Mikey the swagger because I'm not sure, A, that's how it works or if that's even what happened. Um, when I think about it, I can always go to that first day when I walked into the hangar, there was no doubt in front of me he was one of the best pilots on the planet. And, and Mike kind of said it. He knows he is excellent at what he does. Um, he was curious. He was almost, if you took out a psychology 101 textbook for sports psych, he was taking notes and he was like, teach me more, tell me more. I want to learn something today. In some ways, me as a professional, I always pause at that when someone that elite says that to me, because I'm like, you know a lot. Let, let, let's slow down here for a sec. Hmm. Um, Mike and I have laughed about this. That darn notebook used to drive me nuts in meetings. I think we finally got him to shut it by like the fourth meeting. I'm like, A, I'm not that brilliant that you have to write down every word I have to say. And Mike, you are smart enough to remember the key ideas and we're going to build a story over time. So I think one, this was really a build. And I think the first step was to clean up some rigidity that can happen when we try and be excellent, right? We try and get it perfect. As Mike said, right, you know, we we had this excellent MIT aerophysicist who was planning out the route, but humans don't do an exactly direct route. So unless you sand off some of the rigid edges, you can't perform in the real world with so many factors going on. So I think there was really that piece. Another note I want to throw out there so we think about what we're doing, this just wasn't about being elite, an elite aviator. Um, so Mike, right, there were about 14 folks in that first, that when yeah. we came together racing a Red Bull Air Race. So I think the audience needs to think about this. So this was 14 of the best aviators from all over the planet, right, an international competition. So it's easy to lose your confidence compared to that bunch. But when you walk down the street, it's like, wait a second, you're pretty amazing. Hmm. So I think we have to also keep in mind, we're not just talking about being elite at aviation. We're talking about competing against the best of the best. And Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe there were times that we have won and we won and lost races by the, the nose cone on the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Right. It, it turned out to be thousands of a second at times. So, so think about this. Your audience to think about this. Going through the air for about one minute and winning and losing by that little factor. Hmm. So yeah. we weren't talking about this I can do it confidence. We were talking about a boldness to say, let's go compete. I think I'll be all right today and let's see what happens. Let's throw it on the chips. So then also to what Mike said, I think there was this cleaning up team culture a little bit. I, I know I'm remembering the early years, Mike, you talked to me about, well, we'd have our practice days. And then when it was day to race, we stopped talking to the other hangers and the hangar would get super serious. And I, I remember in my head, I was kind of like, that's cool that you're focused, but 
there's a difference between focused and on pins and needles. So, and some of that had to do with the hanger culture. And as Mike talks about the hanger culture that evolved, you know, Pablo, Warren, you know, I think the hanger culture was serious on race day. There were no jerks in there. There was no extra stress, but it wasn't, it wasn't devoid of laughs or nice pats in the back. Is that fair, Mike? It wasn't a pins and needles hanger. It was a professional hanger down the yeah. stretch. Sure. You know, yeah. and I think that was critical, right? Because there's this term I, I love that I think, Pete, you've probably seen, we've seen some science, emotional contagion. Mm-hmm. Our emotions infect each other. So if we, we couldn't infect our pilot because he had to go. But we also didn't want him, him to infect us while we're trying to help him help him out to get the plane in the air safe and fast. So I think that hangar culture was a big thing. So I, I think when I hear the confidence piece, I go, yeah, it came there to me. It felt a lot more organic to me than it probably felt to Mike. And I can, Mike though, I can tell you the day I think your whole team felt the confidence. It was Las Vegas, 2016. Uh-huh. You remember what happened last well, race of 2016? You won it by the way. I don't like what Wikipedia says. Yeah, we we totally w- we would have won that race if it didn't get winded out. But we like we blew everybody away by a long shot, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody was going to catch us at all. I, I saw so- the flight video. You won it. I'm sorry. Everyone got <laughs> yeah. in the air. You were the number one race. The the pylons were like crooked on the ground, and you still just flew through them as if it was nothing. Yeah. So Peter, it was like it was definitely the most challenging conditions we've ever had in the air race. Mm-hmm. And it literally, like people were worried about trying to land the airplane back on the runway after the flight, not as much as the flight. It was so windy um, and we totally crushed it. And I agree with you like then. And what happened is the pilot after me hit a pylon and then it went out of the wind limits and so on. And so there was two people left to fly. So they actually officially didn't have a race. But in team number 99, we're like, we won. We get that. We don't have a trophy to show for it. And Wikipedia doesn't say that we did, but we won the race. And, um, but that was, and we like, we were awesome. The whole thing, it was like, we flew on rails in just stupid conditions. And I think that was probably a turning point for me as well. And like, Hey, these are conditions that like were just almost impossible and we made it feel like there was no problem with the wind. And then that was sort of, it gave me belief in myself. I think it gave the team belief in me uh, and just us as a unit that we could go out and do it, right? It was, it was wild, Mike. And again, maybe it stands out big in my memory because I was noticing the whole team. Because to start now, so that was 2000, to start the 2017 season. We all met down the hangar. So it was uh, Steve, Warren, Pablo, you, me. So we're talking tactician, coach, you know, the brain, you know, the brains of the path, you know, MIT aerophysicist, right? And when I went in, we had a few seconds before we were going to have our team meeting. And I, I don't know if it was Pablo, you're like, dude, you got to watch the Vegas flight. It was crazy. Like, that's what you said. So we kind of watched it. And as everyone watched, we were like, man, you flew great. So we're watching everyone light up. And I don't know if you remember, I, I, I rarely, I try not to overdo handouts or anything. I had one handout for that team meeting. And on it, it said Plymouth, which is where your hangar is, to the podium. Mm-hmm. Let's go. I still have that, by the way. Yeah, you make my day. And I'm not <laughs> one to talk about outcomes or dwell or get distracted by them. But that was there. It was like, okay, we got the plane. We got the pilot. We got the team. 
and it was really cool, Mike, because I, I, you could feel it that day. So the the, the the swagger, the confidence, and the confidence in the team is important. There's a couple of other things that jumped out when you were talking there. One of them was letting go of outcomes. And, you know, we're just going to go out there and compete, let the chips fall where they may, I think he said, you know, just letting go of that outcome completely. But the other thing which which really jumped out to me was the idea of kind of letting go of, of precision and letting go of the idea of being perfect. Because for me, as a, as a kind of casual observer, this is a sport where you have to be pretty precise. So the idea of kind of letting go of that precision is is almost counterintuitive. Mike, can you tell me a little bit about how you maybe went through that process or or, or am I even getting that right? Yeah, but I, I, it, it's, okay, this sounds funny. Um, <laughs> precise by whose measure, right? So, uh, yeah, when somebody says, oh, you know, I can fly an airplane at 230 miles an hour through two inflatable pylons and I want to keep the airplane within a few feet of the track, like, yeah, okay, that's precise. But honestly, we're almost thinking inches, right? And so it's, it's a huge difference. And yet you're not thinking about, this is the, the beauty of it, you're not thinking about being precise when you're doing it, right? You're just saying, I need to get from here to there, to there. And Pablo said, squeeze a little bit more here, let off a little bit more there, feel this there. And it's that whole athlete in the sky and the 10,000 hour rule, all that kind of stuff. Like it just happened, right? We didn't, you didn't force it. You just, you just tried to make it happen. And so uh, the precision just comes as something that is the result of, you know, just trying to find the right path through the track and being athletic about it and letting your innate instinct make a perfect track. So you're kind of really dialed in, in the moment, almost kind of feeling it rather than aiming for that precision is that is, yeah you're that... you're 100 percent trying to feel it you're absolutely like in the, you know when it's going well right when if you have to pull too hard to get through a gate somewhere you know that you're out of line um you know you you could just you can just feel when the airplane's on rails you can feel you know it's like when the airplane was not being strangled by me you could feel like it was a racehorse right like mm -hmm. It just wanted to run faster and faster and the airplane would do that. And then when I would get out of position and start to have to yank on it, well, that slows it down. And so you could feel, you could feel the sort of energy in the plane as you let it do what it wanted to do, which was go fast. Can I add a piece in here? To, uh, it might even be a question for Mike because I heard what Mike said. Sure. I think it's going to keep adding to where you were going, Pete. So, Mike, I feel like one thing I learned to know, and you, you said it, as long as you weren't holding too tight. So one goal always, is a fair say, Mike, is to not take away the plane's energy. The goal right. is to get energy into the plane and not steal the energy from the plane. Yes. And if Mike was trying to be too perfect, he'd steal energy from the plane. And though, uh, sorry, Mike, uh, this is like a sort of question statement. I want, 
if though it was all over the place, then he ends up chasing the race, right? So when you talk precision, it's don't steal the energy from the plane. Don't be so wide out of a gate that then you're just chasing and trying to make up for that precision mistake. And that was the thread that we were always trying to get to. And when Mike says be an athlete, talks feel, Mike, so much of it was us saying, use your eyes, right? Uh, Peter, you know, it's going back to the motor development literature. When we would talk courses and when you would show up on sites, you and Pablo would talk about, I remember when we were in San Diego, you were like, that battleship, that's my sight line on this one. So it would be really getting out of his head and letting him go. But I think when we talk precision, to me, it's, was energy being robbed from the plane because the human in the seat? Or was the human in the seat so sloppy you were chasing the whole way and we we're trying to hit that window? Mike, does that clean that up a little bit? You see where I'm well, going there? Yeah. You're, you're totally right. But I think another paradigm shift for us mentally was like, because you can say it all you want, but you have to believe it. And that is you're only competing against yourself because I can't, I have no, uh, no ability to change the way that my competitors were going to race. All I could do was change the way that I was going to race. So Adam, that's one of the things that you told me was like, Hey, let's go shoot for a number, right? Let's go shoot for 103. Let's go shoot for 1025. Let's go shoot for 102. And, and so then I started to compete against myself and, th- and that led to consistency, right? And then, you know, the way that I looked at it is the more consistent you got, the more fear you put in your competitors. Because like a lot of my, let's face it, a lot of the success that I had was because in, in 2018, our competitors knew that if they were going to beat me, they had to be on their game. Which, which puts them off their game, right? And so that was another thing that I had to learn was like, Michael, you just go be you because they're the ones that are nervous. You're not nervous. So we went out, put down a number and like, try to go beat that peeps. It's like up to you. Go, go, um, go do that. And for most of 2018, they couldn't do that. And even as you speak of it, you and Pablo could always pr- – predict a pretty aggressive number that you guys could hit, which I think is an interesting note too, Pete, when we think about like kind of leave my be like, it wasn't a conservative number. It was like, hmm. here's, here's a 99 plane number. Let's go do it and see what happens. Like, no, I, I, I love that. I mean, this is, you know, this is performance goals in action in real life, having a real impact here. We talk about this theoretically, you know, don't focus on outcomes, focus on performance, but here you are laying down these, you know, challenging performance goals. And this is the, the, the real life impact you're aiming for consistency. You are getting consistency and you're putting the fear of God into your competitors. Um, no, I love that. Adam, you know, we talked about feel and we talked about how do I put this? It's not automatic pilot, if you pardon the pun, but you talked about this idea of kind of almost letting go and just feeling it and not strangling the performance by trying too hard. You know, as the psychologist, h- how do you help athletes to do that? Um, how do you help them to get into that headspace? Maybe some of the, some of the things that you might do, the processes that you might work through, any tips or ideas? Well, man, I could, I could go all day on this one in some ways. <laughs> I think, I think, especially in this situation, and frankly, it's how I like to work. Um, I think it's always best when it's kind of 
embedded and never excessively aggressive in the education because that's really what we did right so if i think about the factors of the team's work on the mental game the emotional game whatever term we want to use i actually made a note before this call I'm like there was the prep in between races so between races mike and i would probably catch up once or twice it was to debrief the previous one it was to prep a little bit for the next one but it was light it wasn't like do this different in this next one it was more Mike talking, going, yeah, I was a little bit out of my bubble on this one. Maybe I need to. It was, it was almost once we laid the foundation of the take care of your own business and see what happens and some basic skills, it was really Mike refining them with the expert to go, really? Are you sure? Or maybe a little bit more of that. So there was this between prep time. I, Mike, if I if I think about it correctly, if I'm to time it right, it's probably after an event, we probably tried to get together within two weeks. So it was a little bit fresh in the mind. And then before you headed out to an event, it was probably about two weeks before that. So we kind of were able to lay that. So there's the prep in between stuff that um, I think feels traditional in sports psych. But again, I want to say I, I'm never a heavy handed with mental skills guy. Mm-hmm. I'm always about the athlete building that. And Mike did that, right? So if you were to look at the cage of his plane, those steel bars, he actually printed up. I, I think it was Mike, breathe and use your eyes. The two last reminders to allow him to be an athlete in there. I never said, go do this. It'll make you better. We, we worked it so it came to Mike and it fit him. Um, yeah. So in, inside yeah. of my cockpit, we put a, we, I put a, a label inside, which could change from race to race or flight to flight. And it was a thing that I would look at just before I would enter the track. And it was a, th- it might say like, believe, right. Or trust yourself or breathe, you know, breathe deep or whatever it is, or relax or, you know, whatever that might be, those, those key words. And it changed from where we were in the season to where we were race to race, all of those things. So we did that. But the other thing that was pretty interesting, and and this is a golf analogy that really helped me is at the beginning of the season, and I was like, listen, we're humans, right? So let's just go try to make a bunch of pars this year. And oh, by the way, you might make a birdie or two, and you're probably going to make a bogey or two, right? And that that kind of set my expectation for the year. There's going to be whatever, nine races, eight races, 10 races. And like, hey, let's, let's just go try to make a bunch of pars. And every once in a while, you're going to get you know, maybe you're going to get lucky, whatever, and you're going to, you're going to make some birdies and then maybe you're going to get unlucky and you're going to make a bogey or two. And that, what that did for me is set an expectation of how I was going to perform for the year, right? Hey, you're, and oh, by the way, we won twice in that uh, year and we had a couple of track records. We, we won qualifying a couple of times in con. I won qualify. I was, I was last to, to qualify and I won qualifying, I, but, but you, it's the best of two qualifying laps. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go out and do it again. And I beat my own time to stay on top of qualifying. And we did those. So those were our birdies, right? And then we had a bunch of great races and podiums. And those were just kind of pars and, and almost in a way, ho-hum, right? We just kind of prodded through the, the race. We're like, oh, guess we're second. Guess we're third. That's really cool. And then we had a couple of bogeys. And and what it did for me is to be like, oh, that's my bogey. 
not me coming back to the United States going, oh my God, Adam, the season's over. I'm a failure. We're in trouble. Like, nope, we expected that. We talked about that in February. It didn't happen until August. But hey, there's your bogey. Don't worry about it. Sweep it under the rug. Let's go to the next one. And that's a, you know, they talk about golfers being able to take a bad shot and put it out of their brain for the next one. And we kind of did that on a big macro level with the races. Yeah, I'm so happy you remember that, Mike. So, people, Mike's basically saying if I were to kind of really turn into like tight sports like stuff, I think it's me stylistically, but I think it's very much what we did is every single season we doubled down on perspective and acceptance. Right. We said we're willing to accept what happens every week because we're against the best in the planet. And we're going to have perspective that this is a X number of race season. We're going to lay down a bunch of fast times and we trust that we're going to end up where we're supposed to end up. And Mike, we laid it so it wasn't just a mantra. It was something that really was in our gut. And that, and Mike said it so well there, right? It's why there was no panic if it was like, like, it's so funny when we talk about like 2018 when I'm like, oh, there was no panic when Mike got fourth. I'm like, holy crap, most guys would love fourth. But like <laughs> to us, that was a bad race in 2014, right? 2000, I mean, 18. But there was no, you were able to roll with everything going on. If you could really have a pilot and a team, because I think Mike, to your point, when talking about team, the team was on board with this, right? So yeah. You know, Pablo and I would catch up regularly and I just stay on message. Like, I feel like, hey, we're all right. Lay down some good races. We got this. We're all right. We got a phenomenal plane. And doubling down on perspective and acceptance allows you to be confident. Because then no outcome, no outcome rattles you. As long as you know you're good, no outcome is going to rattle you if you've got perspective and acceptance in something of this intensity. So I'm so happy you pulled that up. It makes me happy that you still remember it these, these many years later. <laughs> You're listening to the 80% Mental Podcast. I'm here with Mike Goulian and Dr. Adam Naylor, and we're talking about the psychology of the skies. And honestly, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation so far and i i think if, if any of the episodes i've done this one we're really seeing the real life application of lots of psychological principles here you know we've just been talking about using focus cues and changing up those focus cues depending on situations and time of year and whatever else is going on we've been talking about acceptance and setting expectations and and again you know i love the idea of the, uh, this golf analogy you can aim for par, accept some bogeys, maybe get some birdies as well, but just being realistic about that. So we're really delving into like the application of lots of different psych skills here. Um, you've mentioned the team quite a lot and um, you've, some specific team members. Mike, talk to me a little bit about that because excellence doesn't happen on its own. Talk to me a little bit about the team and you know how – we talked earlier about the confidence that the team, you know, brought out, but talk to me a little bit more about that. What, what, what does the team bring and how does that help you? Well, a couple of things happened um, as Adam will laugh when I say this and my team members, when they hear this podcast will also laugh. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a type a anal one, everything perfect kind of a guy. And I'm looking at the camera and Adam's 
grimacing and laughing at the same time. <laughs> I said the most beautiful hanger on the planet. Don't oh, there's there's coasters everywhere. You right? better not set your drink down without a coaster under it in Mike's hanger. <laughs> so I'm the kind of guy that uh, like I loved my race plane, and to me it was. I'm still a kid that was given the chance to do amazing things and amazing airplanes. And like, I wanted it clean. I wanted the bugs off of it and all of these kind of things. And I wanted it perfect all the time. And, you know, before we got this team assembled, I was the one like cleaning the bugs, cleaning the canopy, because it was just my thing. Right. And then, but it was more a sense of, I knew my other team, it wasn't, they were not, as dedicated to the process of perfection that I was. But then with this team, they were all so uh, dedicated and they were all in on what we were trying to do. And we all knew our role, right? And my role was one fifth of the team. We, we There were five of us on that team and we were each equally dedicated to the success. So the pie was cut in five ways. I did my job. They did their jobs. I never worried that they weren't going to do their jobs to 150% of their ability, which just gave me uh, the ability to relax and focus on flying the airplane, right? I didn't have to think about the business side. So when I say it's a team sport, um, that's what I mean, right? They, they took their equal weight and put it on their shoulders. So all the pilot had to do was fly. And that was so great for me because it freed my mind up to be like, Hey, I'm going there as one fifth of this team. Yes. I might own the team. Uh, everybody's quote working for me, but we're all working with each other. And that was so freeing to be able to have a team that is so, committed alongside you and it was just amazing and we all had the goal and when and when one of us made a mistake we're like oh okay it's you it was usually me like and they would make a joke they're like huh we gave you a great race plane what happened boss i'm like <laughs> well i guess i was uh i was uh, having a rough day as they might say and we all kind of laughed it off and it was okay and we were all super committed um and i think that was the big thing is the team was so important in allowing me to be great. And, and if I screwed up, like they were cool with that. They're like, Hey, that's, that's okay. you like, you weren't great today. You tried your best and nobody's mad at each other. And we just went all into the next one. Adam, you talked a lot about culture earlier on and kind of, I guess it sounds like you created a really strong team culture there. What kind of aspects of that culture are important for you as a psychologist looking at this and uh, again you know do, do you have an input in in creating that culture or, or cultivating that culture or shaping it or again is it just kind of more of an organic thing gosh um i have a lot of thoughts on that as someone that's been in this space for a while so one mm. i think if, if someone's experienced eth ethical and know what they're doing i hope whoever their employer is allows them to help impact that because if not, they're, they're leaving knowledge off the table, right? They're leaving impact off the table because I think it's one of the challenges, I think, in how sports psychology, mental performance gets used that we think, and Mike 
was great because he said, Adam, let's build this. Let's do this. How do we do this? Right. He valued me as a professional that I, I'm often I often say I I believe that, yeah, I can sit with an athlete and teach them to be mentally tough. But if they're in an environment that's either toxic, confusing, it doesn't matter. Our mm-hmm. mental performance doesn't happen in a vacuum. I even think it's a bad move on a consumer's day. If the consumer's like, okay, you go make Mikey mentally tough. I'll be like, sure. But what if we've got a hanger that's just emotionally out of whack? You know, and, and I, so I think when I look at it, and it's, it's been, a, I think, a hallmark of my career for quite a while. I, I think I come in fairly unassuming, I hope, but with a nice amount of knowledge where people go, oh, do you mind impacting more? I, I, I rarely walk in and go, we're going to shake this whole thing up. Mm-hmm. To me, that's like a bad executive consultant move. Like that's, that's like something out of a movie in the 80s. <laughs> okay, sit there and you just kind of, if someone has invited you in, you move with it as a team. Um and you said it, right? Because I think about it. So, Mike, I'm trying to remember order of events and how you added people to the team. Uh, I think Pablo might have been after me. But even once Pablo joined the team, he's like, hey, Adam, can I talk to you? So Mike also built a team that was ready to be a team, mm-hmm. you know, that was ready to kind of learn and grow together. Um, I'll tell you, like, the the amount I learned from this team, as I said, I'm an aviation geek now. Right. It's a it's amazing that I can tell you like, yeah, 10 G's is no big deal. We worried about Mikey when he was over 12. Right. Like like I can't believe that came out of my mouth, for God's sakes. Right. You know, so I I think it it was a team that wanted to learn together, but also wanted to support each other, as Mike said. And and I think. Again, I'll say it again. Again, anyone that thinks that the mental game exists in a vacuum is an absolute fool. You're not going to get to where you want to go. And. It was a team that all played their roles, but also integrated nicely. You know, I, I, I'm, I was raised by a woman from the North Shore of Boston, so that means you're always supposed to be helpful. I fought every single urge to take a screwdriver and try and help on the plane because that no good could have come of that. Even though I want to go, look, Warren's helping. Like, maybe I should help help Warren. I'm like, like my family will say that. I'm not allowed to do home care stuff, let alone help out on a plane that's going to be in the air. So, Mike, you never knew I had to fight that urge periodically to be helpful on a plane. And thank God I was. But I'm everyone so kind of played their role. Oh, my God. I, I'm glad, too, because I, I don't have that much liability insurance in my life. Restraint was good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I think, Pete, it, it just my philosophy is it can't exist. And in all my current roles, it you know, I care about the person in front of me, but I, I hope we're building a culture and an environment together so we can thrive because that's that's the game changer. Yeah, I, I think that's such good advice that you've just given there uh, to any kind of up and coming psychs who are maybe listening to this, any sort of uh, trainees about impacting on culture, because like, like you said, you know, performance doesn't happen in a vacuum. Culture is important. And take those opportunities to have an impact uh, on that because we've seen that you know as you've described it's such an important aspect of, of performance yeah and i think you said something if i think trainees right because i think everyone wants to impact at this level like even as mike was t- talking about how long it took him to be excellent mm. gosh i don't know how long was i in the field before i walked into mike's hangar 2015 we're talking probably 15 years, right? I, I wasn't in my first five years and I didn't even do it with Mike. I think young folks are like, I heard I should impact an environment. Let me tell them I'm going to impact their environment. Mm. 
you know, you notice as I said it, we kind of let it come together. So it was an invitation for me to impact, mm-hmm. not me putting someone in a headlock and going, your environment sucks. Let me fix it. Cause it sure. didn't suck. Frankly, I think that's a really arrogant place that sports psychers can come from sometimes going, we can fix your environment. I'm like, come on. These are high performance environments. Our job is to nudge it. Yeah. Cause um, the, so the, the, I, yeah. Yeah, because the tendency is to want to make that impact straight away, isn't it? And to kind of go in there all guns blazing. And it's the worst thing. We we know it from change management. If you go in trying to give advice and you weren't invited to, you're going to get resistance. So environment shaping to me, uh, it's no fun if I don't get to do it, frankly, as a professional. But if I try and force it, it's going to meet resistance. And or maybe I wasn't invited to do that. No, absolutely. Um, uh, Mike, tell me about, you know, we're talking about culture and um, like how that impacts on on performance. Tell me about how you go from being excellent to elite, like, you know, top tier performances, like 2018, five podiums in eight races, something like that. You know, you talked a little bit about consistency earlier in terms of, you know, setting those realistic expectations and goals and, 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 you know, performances. But talk to me about that. How do you go from excellent to consistently elite? I think ultimately it's it's combining all of these things that we've already spoken about. But to try to sort of whittle it down to one thing, I think it's self-confidence, right? And and uh, we've my family, my daughter and I have a 17 year old daughter and we've, we've been formula one fans for ages and ages and ages. And, uh, we went to Austin last year and then we went to, we just came back from Europe where we watched, uh, we went over and said hello to the Red Bull folks and went to the Red Bull ring and watched the formula one race there. And it's just hard not to be appreciative of how dominant Max Verstappen is at the moment. And it's interesting when you when you watch him, when you see the way he interacts with his team, uh, he's taking risks with pit stops when his team doesn't want him to because he has self-belief both in himself and his team that he makes risky decisions. And when I look at that, I think, oh, that's a lot of the way that we felt in 2018 or, or I felt like, Hey, there was not anything that we couldn't do. For instance, um, I over G'd in Budapest twice and finished last in qualifying. And I can remember we were flying against a pilot who was super fast and in their media debrief after in their, um, talk with the with the press that pilot said yeah michael made a couple of mistakes today but i'm gonna have to be really fast to beat him tomorrow and i was like ah we've already won right and so it was funny so i knew on saturday night that all i had to do was quote go throw a number we did Mm -hmm. he made mistakes we won we kept going on and then we we got into the final four. Same thing in Indianapolis, which was a really amazing, epic win. I think we qualified eighth or ninth. We just weren't finding it, right? And, we're, we're, and I can remember the four of us got in the car to drive home. And there was like complete silence in the car. And I just 
screamed at the top of my lungs and pounded the seat. And then Warren did it. And then and then Pablo did it. And then Mankins were like, Emily, she was our team coordinator. Like, you have to do the same. So we all swore and screamed and punched the car. And we said, okay, that's all good. Now let's go win a race tomorrow. And we did. And be just because we knew we could, right? And so to me, self-confidence is that. And when I look at like where Lewis Hamilton is today, I know that Lewis Hamilton is amazing, but for some reason, he just doesn't have that like that super amazing swagger that he had two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. It, and is it his performance? Is it the car's performance? Is it the team? Um, because the guy's amazing, right? And so there's this fine line, and it seems to me that in any of these sports – there's one or two people that clearly are just clicking in a season and then everybody else is trying to find it. And, uh, and I think a lot of that is just that self-belief. Um, and it's so, it's such a fine line. Um, you almost don't know how you got there and then you almost don't know how you, you lost it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, in 2018, it was just complete self-belief in my skill and the team's ability to give me a good plane. And I think when you look at Verstappen in the race today, it's kind of the same way. It's pretty impressive to watch, but it won't be forever, right? Yeah. Adam, listening to that, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have so many. One, I think there's some, there's a sneaky tidbit that just went in there when I think about how we worked and all all grew together. He mentioned qualifying and practice. I can tell you early on, like qualifying and practice was like a judgment of oneself going, Oh God, was I fast today? Was I slow today? How did other people do in practice? And I I remember like, I I, I get it. Like I always joke outcomes matter. The more my athletes win, the smarter I look for God's sake. So trust me, I get it (laughs) matters. But I remember sitting with my dad, I'm like, you know, I felt like I pulled out my best Allen Iverson. I'm like, it's practice. Wasn't your job to learn about the plane? Wasn't your job to, but there was this whole, and and this happens in all sports going, how'd they do? Am I going fast? What not? So literally I think Mike's saying something interesting is he's training, he's reflecting, he's learning. The whole team got to the point where guess what? One run doesn't define your next run. And now think about how powerful that is, right? It goes back to that, that golf mindset. He mentioned, okay, qualified last I'm a fast pilot. See you tomorrow. Right. So, and again, it doesn't mean there wasn't like, Oh God, did we just do that? There's definitely a healthy kick your own butt, but there was not really, you know what mattered? Race day mattered. You know, you know what mattered? The final race you get to race. And hopefully the final race you get to race is for the podium. And And a lot of things. No, no, I think that's great. And I did. But when you said, I was like, that to me was a powerful thing of dropping the practice mentality became a practice mentality, not a, am I good enough mentality? It was like, we're here to practice. Yeah. And as I think back about some of the things, like I honestly, I just stopped looking at the timesheet. Like it didn't matter. I can remember we'd qualify and we do the whole thing. And then we'd meet with a bunch of people. We do go to a press conference and then we leave. And I was like, Oh, Hey, how did Yoshi qualify? Oh, how did Kirby qualify? Who do we fly against tomorrow? Like we didn't even care. Like I didn't know, like it doesn't matter. And we just said, well, we have to beat them all anyway. So what's the big deal? And like, I just stopped caring 
who flew where. Like it was interesting to me, and and this is something that I didn't realize while I was doing it, but when you look back after, like I was that was I was racing against myself. I I didn't care what anybody else did. It was it was interesting. I lived my own. My lived in my own world. I w- it was like I, maybe it was just sort of super egotistical, but I'm like, I don't care. I'm just there to care how I do. I don't care how anybody else does, right? And I didn't even pay attention. I'm like, I don't care where you qualify. It doesn't bother me. Hey, you're a heck of a guy. Let's go have a beer tomorrow night after the race. But like, to, I don't care how you do. And same thing in the race. I was like, who do I fly against in the first round? Okay, who do I fly against in the second round? Okay. Who do we have to beat in the final four to go? And then we just did it. And you didn't like the race unfolded around you and you didn't care. Right. After the, you know, you looked up on the screen at the end, you're like, oh, the, oh, that's how it ended. Okay, great. But I was so ingrained in my own world. I didn't care about anybody else's world. And to go to the team piece, Mike, when you say that, I think about it, all the years, but that year too, the team was at its worst when the team was taking the bait on that. If one team member said, oh, so-and-so went fast today, it was like, no, 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 no. We race against them. We don't care how they did, right? right. Like I think there was that going back to this team culture of how do we infect, like Mike had gained that mentality, but there wasn't also a whole different dialogue going on. There wasn't, you know, because I think we had moments that year where every now and then we talk as a team or I'd talk to a few team members. They'd be like, yeah, in this round, I started getting a little panicky about Hangar X, it was like, ah, we got out of our bubble. And I know you used to say that year was you get in your bubble and you'd be in your bubble. So I, I don't think it was egotistical at all. I think it was the, it was the attack. It's like we lay down 99 times, you know, we're, we're the 99 plane. This is how we race. Let's see what happens. It, it was a, it was a very confident and trusting mindset actually. And as yeah. Mike said, it was like, and sometimes we might lose, but guess what? We're a pretty fast plane. And I ended up like the entire year, I would put, literally put earplugs in my ears on qualifying morning in my hotel room and went to breakfast, went to the airport, went to the whole thing. I'd only take my earplugs out just to listen to the, to the main aviation briefing, put my earplugs because I didn't want to hear what other conversations were going on and I just like I just drowned out the rest of the world and I was just living inside of myself through the whole time right and and that's the that was just the way that I did it is like I just drowned out the noise so even at breakfast like everybody's chatting around me and I'm just like oh these eggs are pretty good and and that was kind of the thing and and I just didn't I didn't get sucked into what was happening in the hangar I mean that's really interesting because I I I was gonna I was gonna ask you kind of what you know how how you get into that mindset but you literally drowned out the noise you know some athletes kind of figuratively find ways of of distracting themselves or whatever but you like literally plugged your ears so you couldn't hear what was going on around you absolutely don't want to know it all became a mumble well you also the little and you shared this I know about podcast year ago you ended up with two phones and shutting down the phone where people would blow you up during it. You know, another a retired racer friend of mine, Nigel Lamb from from the UK, amazing guy. He's like, Michael, I think you're too busy to win a world championship. You can't win a world championship. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, hey, you should be proud of this great business that you're doing and all these air shows you're flying. And he's like, but your life is too too busy, too cluttered. I don't know if you can do it. And that's all he had to say to me. So what we did is basically I bought another phone that only had my wife my daughter and my mother's phone numbers in it. That was it. And 
Um, that's how people communicated with me. I gave away my iPad, my computer, everything. And so when I stepped on the airplane uh, in Boston to go to Budapest, Abu Dhabi, Tokyo, wherever it might be, I was, again, sort of mentally out of that world and into the race world. And so I didn't read social media in any way because everybody was talking about the race and who was fast and who wasn't. And, and again, for me, I just personally work better when I'm not engaged in the noise. I didn't want to, it's like, it's meaningless anyways. It's a bunch of people talking and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, it doesn't matter. And I knew what they were going to say. Like, oh my God, can anybody meet Michael Goulian this weekend? Or they're like, Michael Goulian threw it away in the last race. And is he going to crumble under the pressure again? And like, I don't want to hear any of that. Like, I don't care. It's, it's all just, it's just, you know, it's selling tickets anyway, right? Like, mm-hmm. who cares? So um, I just shut myself off from all of that, which I thought was a, a big benefit. Actually. There's another mm-hmm. cool note in there. Sorry, the like Nigel told you you're too busy to win. Some people hear that and go, Mike did not sell his other businesses or stop flying air shows. He set up a way where he could be a professional when it was time to be a Red Bull professional. And I think that's a critical note, right? So so often we hear elite athletes talk, well, I only did this. Mike's a really diverse aviator, but he set the stage. So he could be present with his Red Bull when it was time to be present with the Red Bull. And I think that's one of – Mike, I hope you don't mind me saying like, I think that's one of the really interesting things about those final seasons is highly successful on at least three fronts, right? Because air, air shows, like you're, you're a top billing. Red Bull, we're, we're getting podiums. And you have your hangar and your flight school. So that's not normal if you can't focus on each one of those. And Mike learned how to focus on each one of those and not let all of them collapse on him. So just a sorry pro note there, Mike. I want to make sure that the audience heard there's a subtlety there. It wasn't <laughs> sell your businesses so you can win Red Bull. Mm. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the ultimate in compartmentalizing, but doing that in a way where you can still give attention to the things that need attention. And uh, the, you know, the, creating that bubble thing is really interesting to me because when you were talking there, you, you, know, you mentioned social media and I was going to say, how many athletes are, are willing to to do that, to create a bubble to that extent? You know, we hear a lot about athletes. You know, Steph Curry goes on Twitter at halftime and checks out what people are saying. And, that, and you know, it works for him because he goes out and scores, you know, drops 45 in the second half. But for, for other athletes, it, it is a huge distraction. So, you know, what you're talking about there is like going to, to really extreme lengths getting rid of your iPad, having a phone with only a couple of contact numbers in it when it matters to create that bubble to make sure that your uh, mind is in the right place for performance. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that uh, one size doesn't fit all and we're all motivated to be great in different ways. And obviously Steph does it in a different way. And I think <laughs> Michael Jordan did the same thing, right? Justin sell Michael Jordan in the press before a playoff game and you were in trouble. Um okay. I just, I don't work that way, unfortunately, yeah. or fortunately. It's just, I, I, I'm, I guess I was fortunate to find out what does work for me. And we implemented that.
So this is the 80% Mental Podcast, and I'm here with Red Bull Air Race pilot Mike Goulian and mental performance consultant Dr. Adam Naylor. Um, we've been having a really fantastic conversation about the psychology of the skies and the application of mental skills, mental performance skills, uh, to a, a, a really interesting performance context. Um, I've just got a couple of, of other questions, really, um, before we finish. Uh, if that's okay with, with with both of you guys, um, I, I want to come to Adam first. Um, we've talked about quite a lot of uh, different ways in which the psychologist can have an impact. Uh, we've talked about team culture. We've talked about specific mental skills, and you know your approach is very much an organic approach. You're using the athlete and helping them kind of build their own set of skills to what might be useful for them. As a psychologist working in this performance environment, working with Mike, what have you, what have you learned? What have you learned maybe about yourself? Uh, and what have you learned as a psychologist? God, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty wild question in a lot of ways. Right. And I think everyone's heard me say it. I've, I think I've, I was, I've learned or was reminded about myself how I am a constant learner and that's, enjoy, that's really important to me in everything I do, right? Because I, I, I don't say it jokingly that, I, that being part of this team turned me into an aviation geek, right? Mike might Mike, Mike get a laugh about this. I'm like, okay, he's going to ask me for what did I learn? So I learned this, Mike, wingtips matter, but the pilot matters more. So stop complaining about what the wingtips look like. Right. Is that fair? We, we had a few of those. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is a, a depressing one, I think, to many of us sports psych people, but it, it is a reality that I think we have to realize, but never use as an excuse. Um, a great mental game without the plane doesn't win. Right. And, and that's, but that, it seems obvious to all of us, but Mike, right, was year one, year two, like you had a nice plane and we had a pilot that was really good, but without we refer to it as white lightning that every now and then he scarred up a little red um when, when he hit a few pylons but once that plane was there it was cooking but i'll add to this too the plane didn't get the wins either because we also know this from others racing in red bull the plane without a mental game is not podium material mike right we can probably go through your comparison and go so and so had a fabulous plane there you go another 10 um, so I think we need to know that, and again, that's why the whole culture matters, right? If you don't align the culture at this level, you yeah. can't quite get there. Well, and so I think that was one of the things that was interesting in the air race for the people that were trying to chase it is the belief that spending $40 bazillion on my airplane on modifications and lightning and this and that are going to make me win. It's not. Like, and I, and I was, I was one of those, right. We chased it and chased it and chased it. Uh, and I think we were in the belief that we didn't have the fastest airplane, but we probably had like a top three or four airplane. So all you had to do is get it in the ballpark because the pilots can add or subtract two seconds a lap and like, to get a, a race plane that's two seconds faster would like it's almost impossible to do. So in the top end there of the of the front end of the grid, it was really the the teams. If you looked overall, 
it was the teams that in general had high functioning teams and they had the equipment to go along with it. But our team was by no means the most sophisticated in analyzing or like, I know there are teams that had amazing simulators and that we didn't have any of that. Um, but what I did know is I had, I had Warren that could maintain the plane and Pablo, who was a racer in general, thinking about how do we go faster all the time? But like reality is I had nothing to do with the say of the modifications that went into my plane. They did it. I'm like, just give me a plane and I'll go fly it. <laughs> yes. I'm going to pay for it. Okay. Right. Like I'm the team, I'm the team boss. So like, yeah, like I'm always going to pay for your smart ideas. Some of them work, some of them didn't, but I was like, just give us a plane that's close enough and then we'll make the difference. And, and we did that. I got my third one though. That's not just aviation related. So I figure I got to give this before Go for it. as a sports hiker, the domain matters. And to me, this was a really, I can't tell you. And Mike, and I never talked about it. It's just how I operate. Like I did so much learning and research that first year because right. You know, all the basics of sports, like say, Oh, be mindful while you're flying. There's no such thing as mindful flying when you're under 12 G's of pressure. <laughs> right. Because Mike can't take a nice deep breath while trying not to pass out in the air. Yeah. So all of a sudden going, Hey, like, no, 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 no. What is the domain we're dealing with and what is the right mental game to go with it? Right. So when Mike talks about being an athlete and feel and seeing, I had to go, wait a second. I can't take this, the, the basic mental game textbook that they use for golf and go, well, that'll work great for Red Bull. Because last time I checked, there's no golfers under even two G's of pressure. Well, you know, like, yeah, there's nerves, but there's not these physiological components mm -hmm. that really shape it. There's not the, you know, all of the natural components of wind and whatnot. So taking enough time to not be an expert on it, but to go, wait a second, what actually doesn't transfer to this sport? How do we transfer these ideas so they work? Um that's why I never fixed your mental game on golf, Mike, because this stuff is a little bit different. Sorry. And you're a hell of a golfer, so I'm not sure I can fix it. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, Mike, last last question, and let's, let's wrap this up. Last question to you. Um, what would you say that you have really learned about yourself from your career in the skies? Wow. Okay, Pete, you're getting really deep here. Um. You know, I, I would have to say that uh, I was given good hand-eye coordination as a kid, right? I was given <laughs> the right environment to grow up with. And uh, it's taken a lifetime of trial and error to get where you get to. And that whole idea of hard work and, uh, you know, preparation meets opportunity uh, creates luck. Kind of, I, I was in that thing. And you have to be surrounded by the right people. And Adam was one of those people, right? And, and I didn't know how good I was or how good I could be. And I became more proud of how we did as a team, as opposed to how well I did as an individual flyer on a day, right? We, we had a group of people moving in a direction. And, and it's really cool. I said the greatest athletes make everybody else around them great whether that's Jordan or Brady or whoever it might be. And I felt like that year 
and it might not have been the next year or the year before it. But on that year, I was able to be like, hey, let's let, I'll try to lead and let's everybody come with me and let's create something great. Because we were all my whole team was a bunch of superstars that that year. And it was we did that all together. No, that's, that's a wonderful answer. And I think it really sums up one of the themes that's run through this episode. And that's that performance doesn't happen in a vacuum. The culture is important. Team is important. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love that answer there, Mike. Um, I, I want to thank you both so much for your time uh, this evening. It's been a, a fascinating, genuinely fascinating insight into a world that I genuinely didn't know very much about coming into the episode um i hope our listeners have found it as interesting as i have so to uh mike gulian thank you so much for coming on 80 percent mental pleasure thank you it's been an honor and dr adam naylor same to you thank you so much for giving up your time thanks so much pete thanks mike it's always fun to talk to both of you uh, if you've enjoyed this episode please do share it on your own social media spread the good word about 80% mental and you can subscribe at 80percentmental.com or indeed wherever you get your podcasts you can leave a comment on the website or you can get a hold of us on Twitter or um, X if you're that way inclined these days at <laughs> uh, EPM podcast or on Instagram at 80% mental uh, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time although I won't see you that well because it's a podcast Stop.